Outstanding. Well, church, it's good to see you. And one of the things I love about our church is I do believe there is something for everybody. Anyone just love all the different offerings and the initiatives and the departments and ministries and all the things taking place at our church. There's something for everybody here. And if you're new to Northview, whether you're in the room or at one of our campuses or watching online, my encouragement to you is get in where you fit in. Right, don't miss out on what God is doing here at our church. We would love for you to, to be a part and to feel right at home among us. We say around here, we may not be for everybody, but we do believe we are for somebody. And we sure hope that somebody is you. So welcome to the party. Welcome to week two of Drop It. Someone say Drop It. We are in a series called Drop It. I grew up in a household where we would hear the statement, drop it all the time. You wanna have that mom, that dad? It was kind of their way of saying, hey, knock it off. Stop what you're doing, drop it. Last week, we looked at this tendency that every single one of us has to, to swell up in self-righteousness and to fall into faulty judgment of others. And we said, what would happen if we just were a community of faith that dropped the stones that we're carrying? Our job is to love people. God's job is to fix them. What would happen if we became that type of community? And I'm excited for week two. And I do want to say just a special shout out to all of our locations meeting behind bars. We have four locations that meet in prisons. And guys, you should know this. Since we've started this prison initiative, 1,629 individuals have given their life to Christ. Is that not outstanding? 1,629. In addition to that, 230 inmates have been baptized. That's just outstanding. Love that. And I do got to say, for those of you participating with us uh, in one of our prison locations, just wait for next week. I have a buddy who is going to be sharing next week, and he has, in my personal opinion, uh, one of the greatest testimonies I've ever heard. And I feel it's going to resonate in a very precious way with those of you at our prison location. So be here next week. I'm told race weekend is a doozy in the church world in Indiana, uh, but I just just think you might want to show up to church. And let me ask you a question as we jump into this. Have you ever been watching a game, a football game, a basketball game, and it's clear your team is losing ground? The other team's starting to get some momentum, and your team's starting to play sloppy, and you start to yell coaching advice at the TV. Have you ever yelled coaching advice at the TV? Have you ever called a timeout from your living room? I find myself all the time, like, hey, timeout. The other team's gaining momentum. We're playing sloppy out there. We're turning the ball over and we're taking just terrible shots. Call a timeout. Come on, these Celtics are a real problem. Us Bucks got a repeat, so let's call a timeout, right? That's kind of where you find yourself sometimes. And I say that because over the last couple years, I find myself looking at the world around us, looking at culture, and more specifically, looking at the community of faith at large. And I'm finding myself just saying, hey, time out. Just time out for one second. Could we just pump the brakes? Could we just gather and come together and regroup for a second? You ever wondered if you got to lead the time out, what you would say? If you got to step into the team huddle, what would you say? And today's message is what I would share in the team huddle if we as a community of faith at large could just take a deep breath and maybe take a time out? Is there anything in our our approach to this deal, in our stewardship of our influence and 
in our march of the gospel forward that we could assess and address? Is there anything that we could say, hey, maybe we should drop this? Guys, today we're going to look at something in Scripture. It comes to us in John chapter 18. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you should know that there are four books in the Bible that can uh, contain the life, the teachings, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Those are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what's interesting throughout the Gospels is every single one of them would take, you know, different stories or situations, different things that Jesus taught. And on a few rare occasions, all four tell the same story. When they would write their gospel, all four of them would say, hey, now this, this is important. You can't miss this one. And so what you find is every gospel kind of begins with the birth story and Jesus showing up on the scene. And, and then there's this, this march to the cross. Every day he lived was one step closer to his, his crucifixion. And I am a firm believer that pressure is more honest than pleasure. I think you just learn a lot about a person when they're faced with adversity. And what is amazing about our Jesus is the closer he got to the cross, the better he appeared. I mean, if pressure is more honest than pleasure, truth be told, this Jesus of ours is outstanding. This is an amazing Savior. And so what you find is Jesus goes to retreat with his disciples. And John chapter 18 tells us this. He says, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley, which I just want to preach a whole sermon on the Kidron Valley, this significant place that was known for despair and sorrow that at some point gets redeemed. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. John is well, kind of underwhelming in some of his details. On the other side was a garden, not just a garden, like the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. I mean, this was a pretty prestigious, prolific, paramount place. A lot took place in this garden. And this is where Jesus and his disciples would resort to. You could call this an all-inclusive resort. The garden of Gethsemane has it all, from drama to triumph to beauty and brokenness. I mean, it has it all. And this is where Jesus would consistently resort to, also that he could pray with his disciples. Now, have you ever been with a family or a group of friends and everyone's telling a story? And, and maybe in this situation, it's John's story to tell, but the others just feel like, hey, John, you're missing some things, so I gotta lob in some details. You wanna have a spouse who helps your storytelling? That's what my spouse does. Matthew jumps in. Because John is quick to jump to the next part. And Matthew's like, hey, you should tell him about the issue of prayer. So what happens is you find in the garden Jesus just in anguish. We find him with a pressure and a stress on him that I don't know if anyone else who has ever lived have, has ever tasted. It is pretty significant. Jesus goes to his disciples and he says, hey, would you pray with me? And he goes away and he starts to pray and he comes back and his disciples are sleeping. And so he says, guys, wake up. This is important. My hour has come. Would you pray with me? So he goes away and he starts to pray again for a second time. And he comes back. And they're asleep once again. He's like, guys, 
I'm just asking for a favor. Would you pray with me? Our Savior goes away for a third time. And look what it tells us in Matthew. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing, which was, Lord, take this cup from me. Father, take this cup from me. But if it's your will, so be it. I don't want to do it, but I will if I need to. Man, what a Savior we serve. So he goes on and says he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping? Church, are you still sleeping? Are you still resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. And I, I love how it ends here. He says, rise, let's go. I, I love the, the courage of our Savior. See, a lot of times people think Jesus is careless and he's not careless, but he is fearless. A person who is fearless often appears careless. He says, hey, rise, let's go. I love that statement, here comes my betrayer. And what you find is these disciples are, they're waking up and they're, they're disoriented. And I find at large, the church in America is waking up and the church appears disoriented. You know, I'm married to someone who just wakes up rough. Come on, none of us really wake up well. We look crazy, act crazy. I mean, we're just kind of pulling it together. And it has me thinking about a time in college. My brother and I played basketball in Illinois. We grew up in Colorado. And so one day for the holidays, after practice, we drove through the night to get home for the holidays. So we're driving through the night. My brother takes the first leg. And he drives through. And when sun comes up, we pull over, we get gas. I get in the driver's seat. He goes to sleep. And we're driving somewhere through Nebraska. And I mean, you can see for miles on end. There's nothing out there. No offense if you're from Nebraska. <laughs> and I see a semi towing a semi in the distance. Have you ever seen this? A semi towing a semi. Well, the semi being towed is backwards. And at first when I see this, it trips me out. Like, wait a second, is that coming towards me? And then I realize it's being towed. But he doesn't know that. He's asleep. My brother's a big guy, six, seven. God gave him all the height. Borderline dramatic too. And so I speed up and I am flying up on this semi. It appears as if we're gonna have a head-on collision. And I reach over and I smack my brother on the chest. And I scream out, Rick, we're going to die, right? Like the whole thing. I go there. I never really know where the line is in a prank. And I tend to take things too far. My brother wakes up. And this is what he decides to do in this moment. Unbuckle himself. And climb into the back and over the second row into the trunk of our Chevy Blazer. That was his decision. Head on collision. I should crawl into the back of the Blazer. Because when you're just waking up and you're disoriented, sometimes you're not thinking clearly and you act in bizarre ways. Have you ever found that the last two weeks were a rude awakening? I sometimes wonder if a rude awakening is necessary for a great awakening. 
and sometimes wonder if God and his great sovereignty is going to use the last two years to wake the church up. And right now, I feel like the church in America seems a little disoriented. We're waking up and we're lethargic, and some are even acting in bizarre, unproductive ways. Guys, can we just take a time out? So John picks back up and says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. I mean, it looks like a news broadcast from 2020. I mean, just a mob of people showing up with destruction in mind. So he goes on to say, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Check this out. Says Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? It's like he hits them with a one-two punch. The first one knocks the wind out of them, and he comes back with the same blow. Who is it that you're looking for? I mean, my goodness, I, I want to ask some of you that today, and some of you at some of our campuses. Who is it that you're looking for? In this reckless pursuit of emptiness, don't you just crave substance and a Savior who can sustain your life? Who is it that you're looking for? And so it tells us then, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. Now, if you're a Bible geek, you'll love this next verse. This happened so that the words he has spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Wait a second. You haven't lost one? Judas appears pretty lost. Wouldn't you agree? But here's what I love, and here's a tension of grace. And here's something you do a deep dive into, and you just wonder how great is his grace. Because in this moment, Peter and John and Matthew stand beside Jesus. But who also stands near Jesus? Judas. In this moment, he is just as close to Judas as he is to Peter and John and Matthew and the other committed disciples. Church, what you need to know is there will always be hostility towards our faith. There's always gonna be a challenge in malicious agendas that try to disrupt and dismantle the community of faith. But in some way that is hard to understand, in some way that doesn't register well with our heart, God remains just as close and committed to those people as he is to us. What a message of grace. That right now, as we speak, there are people who hate what we believe. Yet our Savior is just as close to them and at work in their life, pursuing them with reckless abandon the same way he is us. How great is our God. Then Simon Peter. You want to have someone in their life who they like to live vicariously through? It's like, man, I don't want to be you forever, but I wouldn't mind being you for a minute because I envy your lack of self-awareness at times. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, 
cutting off his right ear. And then scripture just wants us to know the servant's name was Malchus. Remember that, that's important. He cuts the guy's ear off. Going on to tell us, Jesus commanded him, put your sword away. Hey, drop it. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You see, as Jesus would march through the region and, and he would teach and perform miracles and do life with people, all along the way, Jesus would establish his standards. Ever been amazed by the standards of our God? Jesus had remarkable standards. He is the ultimate standard bearer. And so you find that no matter what came his way, he never, well, he never, I don't know, diluted, never apologized, never shrunk back in his standards. I was thinking about a McDonald's I seen in Sedona, Arizona. If you've ever been to Sedona, you should know that the McDonald's there are blue because McDonald's ran into a feisty city council in Sedona. Guys, I, I love this story. So in Sedona, city council hears that McDonald's wants to put in a restaurant. And they think to themselves, well, their logo is ugly. And it's gonna ruin the scenery of our beautiful little mountain town. And so the most recognizable logo in the entire world, the golden arches, come to the city council in Sedona and they're like, you can put a restaurant here, but not one of those gold arches. And so I took a picture of this. And in Sedona, there is a blue <laughs> McDonald's. I, I just think this is fascinating. One of the largest corporations in the world has to comply to the standards of this small town. I just wonder what would happen if we stopped being so delicate and so easily offended and, and just so, I don't know, nervous and timid. But we just rose up in some confidence and we stood for what we believe and we didn't falter on our standards. No, we're, we're a community of faith. We reflect Jesus. We take our cues from him. These are our standards. We're people of standards. The Savior of ours is a, is a person of standards. And because of it, you can stand with him and you can stand the test of time. There's four things I want to point out about Jesus in this moment. And the first is his deity. In other words, he's divine. He's God. And you need to know this if you're going to be a Christian. This is fundamental to our doctrine. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He's not half and half. No, he's fully God and he's fully man. What that means is his deity means he can save us. But his humanity means he understands us. And isn't that amazing? Not only does he understand us, but he can save us. What I love about Jesus is he is the epitome of heaven on earth. Jesus is the epitome of heaven on earth. In fact, Jesus showed up to do what? To reconcile a broken humanity with a righteous, holy God. And in his sandals, Jesus stands as proof that God and humanity can get along. 
Oh, man. That's awesome. But what I love about this is, as Jesus would go through his ministry, guys, there was all these murmurs. Who is this guy? Is he a revolutionary? Is he a cult leader? Is he just some teacher with some uneducated followers? Some thought he was a criminal. Some thought he was a heretic. Some said he was demon-possessed. And others said, I think he's the Messiah. I think he's the chosen son of God. And there was all these murmurs. And what's interesting, you'll bump into this in Scripture. As you read Scripture, you'll find Jesus would heal somebody. And what would he do? He'd say, hey, don't tell nobody. You ever run into that? He's so subversive and just humble. So he would say, hey, don't tell nobody. All along the way, you find Jesus almost keeping it on the DL. Which, depending on what age demographic you're in, that means on the down low. <laughs> and so Jesus comes into the garden. And it says they have a detachment of soldiers there with them. The Pharisees, the chief priests, and they have torches, lanterns, and swords. They're showing up for a showdown. In that moment, all the corrupt powers of the world are represented in that garden. And out walks our Jesus. What's amazing is he asked the question, who is it that you're looking for? It's a Jesus of Nazareth. And he makes a statement that most of us, we just read over. And he says, I am. And it knocks the wind out of him. It says they, they completely fall back. Because all throughout scripture, over 300 times, the creator of the universe, the God of heaven, the, I mean Yahweh, is referred to as I am. And in that moment, they step into the ring and it's a clash of the titans and they get a glimpse of a victor's look in his eyes. Oh my goodness. You ever seen a victor's look in someone's eyes? Recently, I was playing my daughter one-on-one. -on -one, and guys, I'm obsessed with this kid. She's 12 years old, and she can flat-out ball. I mean, it's amazing. So the other day, we're playing one-on-one. -on -one. Games to 11, ones and twos. Make it, take it, because Johnsons don't like to play defense. <laughs> I'm up six to zero. Riley gets the ball. She hits a two. Then she gets the ball back. She misses the first shot, beats me to the rebound. This is where I'm starting to realize I'm out of shape. <laughs> she pulls a move off and pulls another three, which in this game counts for two points. And the game goes from six to four. And guys, in that moment, I could see in my daughter's eyes a victor's look. It was bone chilling. I literally had to like go, I, I need a drink. I need a timeout. Not today. This is not the day we lose to her. I am undefeated in these games. Sure, at some point it's coming, but she's gonna be 20 years old starting as a sophomore for UConn, but today is not that day. But there was a victor's look in her eyes. Started thinking about that. She's 12 years old. When all is said and done, I'm probably going to be able to beat her in basketball for 15 years of her life. The other 70, she's got me beat. When I think about my kid, I, I can't help but realize victory is trending in her direction. 
I mean, the powers of the day stand toe-to-toe with our Savior. And they see a victor's look. And they recognize in this moment, we're past the point of return. But victory is trending in his direction. See, what would happen from this point on is this group of ragtag disciples would go out there. No rights, no affluence, no power, no nothing. But they would carry forward this victory of the cross in their heart. And now we stand on this other side of history where the local church has touched down on every continent around the world and throughout human history, billions of people have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because since this moment, victory has been trending in his direction. Guys, he is God. He's God. You have to see his deity. In addition to that, you have to see his dignity. He is so dignified and distinct. I mean, he, he carries himself in a way that just deserves all the honor and all the praise. Recently, we went through a couple weeks where it's just really busy. I'm a quality time guy, and if I don't get to spend quality time with my wife, you can just tell he's off. And so we decide randomly, hey, let's just, let's take a quick trip to Chicago. We'll get the kids dropped off at school. We'll make the three-hour drive to Chicago. We'll grab brunch, do some shopping. We'll make sure the kids get a ride after school to the ball, uh, ball field. And then we will show up on time for the baseball game. Be a real quick trip, six hours in the car, four hours in the mall. Let's do it. And it was a blast. I mean, we talked about all of our issues. We, we talked about our budget and our summer plans and what each kid was involved in. We took time to listen to an audio book. We're trying to figure out, hey, which, which classics can our kids now read? And so we listened to, to Kill a Mockingbird. And it was awesome. And then we show up at this mall a Monday at 1 o'clock. You ever been to a mall on a Monday at 1 o'clock? I mean, yeah, because no one's there. It's a ghost town. So me and my bride are running around like we own the place. And we go into this one store, and we're just throwing each other clothes over the the dressing room to each other. And guys, we tried on every look. We tried on stuff we can't afford. We tried on stuff we both know we can't wear in public. (laughs) But we just tried it on. And I mean, I tried on every look. I had the CEO look. I had the author look. I had the college coach look. I even had the homeschool dad look. We just tried it all on. (laughs) Kristen did the same thing. One minute she looks like a fitness instructor. Next minute she looks like a musician or an artist. And then one moment, guys, she stepped out of the dressing room in a formal dress. And I was, like, I was blown away. Not in, like, some carnal, surfacy, flirtatious way, but in, like, a deep admiration for my wife. I, I'm like, do I like stand up and take my ball cap off? Like something in me tells me I need to like honor you right now. Like I grew up, Chris and I, we met in college and I fell in love with her while she was wearing basketball clothes. That's all she really wore when we fell in love. And then over time, you just find that life takes its toll and it tends to be more casual than anything. 
I love my wife in a hoodie and some ripped jeans. I like when she throws on the, the work clothes to help me clean the garage or do landscaping or paint. But in that moment, I realized, man, it has been a while since we got dressed up. So we leave and we check out and we're walking through the mall. I can't get this dress out of my head. I just tell her, I'm like, look, I, I don't know what you're gonna wear it for. I don't know when you're gonna wear it. But I just think we need to go get that dress. And I started thinking like, this is what these old gentlemen used to know. Because I don't like getting dressed up. But I don't think any guy really likes to get dressed up. But I think what Frank Sinatra knew is if I wear a suit, she'll wear a dress. So what I'm saying is, is I'm going to be in a tuxedo at least three days a week. <laughs> Guys, here's the point. Here's the point. It is great that God is personal. It's great that he meets us where we're at. It's great that we have a friend in Jesus. It is, it is great that you can go to him even when you look your worst. But don't allow your relationship with God to become so casual that it comes at the expense of a formal relationship with God. Guys, he is noble. He's royal. He's majestic and he is righteous and he is holy and he is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords and it is to him that we bow and we give our full surrender and honor and devotion to you can't lose the formality and the reverence for this God. There's this dignity in him. Wow, this God is amazing. And I don't even know if I should stand up, take my hat off, how to honor you, but you are Lord. And so he comes out and he says, who is it that you're looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. But it's interesting because they have what? Torches, lanterns, and swords. And it's as if Jesus is saying, guys, you have the right person, but the wrong character. I mean, who were they expecting Jesus to be? They show up and it's like, man, these guys are ready for a fight. It's as if they're assuming this Jesus is a tyrant. He's a maniac. He's mean and he's going to lash out. You need to come prepared. And guys, they had the right person, but the wrong character. I worked at Six Flags Great America right outside Chicago. I did the squirt gun game. It was a race to see who could get their thing to the top. And so you had to squirt the water in the hole and whoever won got a stuffed animal. Church, my employment history is pretty impressive. <laughs> Next to me was this lady who would draw caricatures of people. People would show up and pay her to pay, draw a picture of them. And on occasion, pretty regularly, people would see the picture she drew and they would get frustrated. And they would either ask for a refund or a redrawing. And the argument was always, this doesn't look like me. Why do I look like that? I don't look like me. I just think sometimes in the church world, we've developed all these caricatures of God. And I just wonder if God sits back looking at me like, that doesn't even look like me. Why do I look so mad? Why do I look so unattentive? See, a lot of people still think Jesus is some cosmic killjoy bent on wrath and out to ruin your life. And some of you, you have the right person, but you have the wrong character. He's good. He's holy. He's all loving. He's gentle. He's merciful. 
You have to see his dignity. In addition to that, you have to see his destiny. This is amazing to me because Jesus finds himself in this situation where one friend's betraying him and the others are letting him down. I mean, this whole tension centers around this issue of prayer in the garden. And what's amazing to me is as Jesus would get close to the cross, Jesus would talk about his death. At one point, Jesus, talking about his death, has a conversation with Peter. Peter turns to him and says, absolutely not. We'll never allow that to happen to you. And Jesus says what to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Around the same time, Jesus is having what we now know as the Last Supper. He's illustrating once again his death. And up from the table hops Judas. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. What does Jesus call Judas? Friend. Peter's trying to protect him. Jesus calls Peter Satan. Judas is betraying him. Jesus calls him friend. I mean, this is a great juxtaposition that is happening. But what Jesus understood is, hey, Peter, though your heart's in the right place, you are withholding me from my destiny. But what Judas is about to do is going to serve as a catalyst for me to accomplish the very thing I set out to do. That's why I love that statement where it says, knowing all that would happen to him, knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus stepped out and asked, who is it that you want? Rise, let's go. Even though he knew the torture that was coming his way. And I'd say it this way, even when knowing, he kept going. Even when knowing, he kept going. And church, here's the deal. There are some challenges in the future of the church. There are some days ahead of us where we are gonna have some, some obstacles. We're gonna go through some trials. The world as we know it is gonna present new issues that we have to navigate. But even when knowing, church, we have to keep going. We have to rise up in faith, anchor to the cause of Christ, and we have to maintain our standards in a faulty world, and we have to honor the King of kings and the Lord of lords with all that we have. We have to keep going. Now, I love this because Jesus makes a trade. Well, if I'm who you're looking for, let these men go. I mean, the currency exchange that takes place here. You ever traveled to a developing nation and seen how much you can get with a dollar? I mean, you feel like you are balling out of control in some nations, right? You ever looked at Jesus and then looked at us and felt like, man, did God overpay for us? <laughs> the currency exchange, I feel like he may have overpaid for us. And what I love it is the kingdom of God is so different from culture. Culture understands guilt as guilty by association. So culture would have said, hey, the disciples got to be crucified too because they were with them. But the gospel is so different. The gospel is innocent by association. If I'm who you're looking for, let these men go. I mean, what is happening in the garden is breathtaking. It is, it's the gospel in its essence. But guys, where we need to land this plane and this is a slow descent, so there's not too much turbulence. And it is to focus on his directions.
I mean, this is a moment. Peter pulls out a sword and chops the guy's ear off. And this is actually where John stops talking. I think it's because John was in the corner like, mm, like he didn't see what happened next. So Luke has to be like, hey, don't forget this detail. It says, but Jesus answered, no more of this. Like, I don't know many of you personally. I don't know your issues and I can't be the Holy Spirit in your life. But I wonder if you were to diligently and courageously, honestly and vulnerably go to God. If you were to sit down to coffee with Jesus, what in your life, is there anything in your life that Jesus would say, hey, no more of this. Drop it. No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. In other words, church, here's what we have to understand. And here's what we have to embrace as a community of faith, though we live in a hostile world. And that is this, hurting others isn't helping Jesus. I know this is pastoral. I know some of you are already thinking about the email you're going to send me. Just pause for a second. Guys, hurting others isn't helping Jesus. It's a poor reflection of the goodness of our God. And we don't reduce our standards to meet our circumstances. We do not reduce our standards to meet our circumstances. Here's a question. How many disciples chopped off a man's ear? One. It's the only time you see this in scripture. Now imagine if you're John or you're Matthew or you're one of the others and you get down the road and you're having a conversation with someone. Oh, you're a disciple of Jesus. You're the guys who cut people's ears off. They'd be like, what are you talking about? Never cut someone's ear. One guy. Have you ever found that we tend to be identified by the extremist in our groups? What's amazing is Jesus corrects Peter. But in the backdrop, the other disciples actually did it right. The other disciples stood poised and composed. I think if Jesus were sitting down to coffee with us, guys, this is what he'd tell us. Hey, be the example, not the extremist. Be the example. Not the extremist. Be someone who really truthfully makes a big difference. And again, guys, the backdrop is prayer. This all centers around the issue of prayer. Guys, will you pray with me? Guys, will you pray with me? Guys, will you pray with me? And they fell asleep. And now here comes a trial. And disoriented and caught off guard, Peter pulls out a sword and he hacks off Malchus's ear. Which good news for Malchus, Peter was a fisherman, not a samurai. <laughs> Peter wasn't aiming for his ear. Wasn't trying to take his ear off, he was trying to take his head off. And what's amazing is Malchus, literally, the name means my king. In this moment, this man represents an opposing kingdom. And what's amazing to me is Jesus corrects Peter, not Malchus. 
Peter, I didn't ask you to bring a sword. I asked you to pray with me. See, what we're all being exposed of, myself included, is to some degree we have developed a confidence in our own weaponry rather than the tools of God. I didn't ask you to pull out a sword. I asked you to pray. Church, here's the deal. We don't fight with clenched fists. We fight with folded hands. And this is where we get exposed for a very faulty understanding of the power of prayer. We don't fight. Guys, this is so much more powerful than you think. This gives us the ability to dialogue with the creator of the heavens and the earth, to call down heaven in our life. And some of you are thinking, I don't need a nail gun when a hammer works. And it's like, my goodness, you have no idea the power of this. And it's amazing because all throughout scripture, what you're gonna find is God puts the ownership on his people. I believe ownership separates the overwhelmed from the overcomers. And he says, would you pray? Which doesn't prayer sometimes just feel like a trust fall? It's like, I've seen it work for other people, but I don't trust the ones catching me, right? Like, and you're second guessing it. But church, prayer works. Anyone else, you're just a product of prayer. Someone was praying for you. You're a product of prayer. There's another time in scripture just to show you how this theme is consistent in God's word. Second Chronicles seven fourteen says, if my people, not if culture, not if all the weird special interest groups, not of all the groups that have all these bizarre, just immoral agendas. No, if my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, put the sword down, Stop clenching your fists, fold your hands. If my people would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal. Come on, church, isn't this what you're desiring? God, would you heal our land? Would you heal our land? Well, if my people who are humble would humble themselves, who are called by my name, would pray. You guys, here's the thing, and I wanna say this as, as gently as I possibly can. Please hear me on this. I hope I spent the last 40 minutes helping you understand where my heart is at. I'm convinced one of the biggest problems in our nation is Christians are not acting like Jesus. I mean, just look at the research. Guys, 70s and the 80s and the 90s, there's decades on end where upwards to 90% of Americans identified as Christian. But here's the thing. When you're the majority, you have the authority. And when you have the authority, you can get casual. You can get laxed. You can even fall asleep. You no longer need a God on a throne. You just need a man in the office. Guys, I'm telling you, these presidents, we need to vote them in and we need to do the best of our ability to position the right people, but they have a shelf life and it's for eight years. I need more than eight years. I need someone who can cover eternity. Yeah. I'm just telling you, along the way, 
We stopped praying because our swords were working. And now here comes a rude awakening and the church is waking up like, whoa, what are we doing? We gotta get back to this. We are nothing without this. I was talking to a guy the other day who's not a Christian and uh, maybe you've heard this type of criticism. He said, I just can't get on board with what you believe. He said, your faith is just a crutch. It's some weird coping mechanism that you guys have developed also you can get through life. And I was like, man, you have no idea. And he says, see, you're, you're already starting to get offended. I'm, I'm actually not offended. You're heading in the right direction. You just haven't given it enough credit. He said, what do you mean by that? I was like, bro, my faith is not a crutch. If anything, my faith is a full-out stretcher. I mean, this is the lifeline of my being. I can't be a good spouse without it. I can't be a good dad without it. I can't handle suffering well without it. I don't steward my finances well without it. I don't discern a faulty world well without it. I'm just telling you, it is so much more than a crutch. My entire being, every area of my life is fully surrendered and dependent upon the grace of God and his goodness and his plans for my life. It's a stretcher. Guys, I'm just telling you, until this becomes your faith, until you recognize who the God you serve is and you stand bold in confidence, I can trust him. I can trust him. He still holds the world in the palm of my hands. God, I'm gonna treat the small things like they're big things. And I'm gonna know in confidence that you're gonna treat the big things like they're small things. So if this is what you ask, God, would you hear our cry? Let's be people of prayer. Can I pray with you? Dearly Father, God, we thank you for your goodness. God, I pray that you use my limited language to get your message across to every single one of us. God, we are fully surrendered to you. We know who you are. You don't have to sell us. You just have to tell us. God, have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.